91.3 FM WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark in the great state of Delaware. I'm Bill Humphrey, and thanks for listening. The following episode was recorded on June 12, 2017, and produced by me at my studio in Newton, Massachusetts. This week, Jonathan and Rachel joined me to discuss the U.S. housing crisis. All that and more just ahead on Arsenal for Democracy. Arsenal for Democracy is available for download on Wednesdays at arsenalfordemocracy.com and from iTunes. We air the show in Delaware on 91.3 FM and stream it from wvud.org on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. Follow us on Twitter at AFD Radio or like us on Facebook. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me again in studio this week is Jonathan Cohn. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me on. And joining me on the line from Idaho is Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Bill. Thanks for inviting me again. So this week we're going to be talking about housing. I want to start at the top by saying that housing is like a huge, huge topic that people could go on for, you know, many, many episodes about. And there's tons of very complicated history in the United States that, you know, relates to certain facets of housing crises and things like that. So it's not like we're going to be able to cover every angle or anything or go into much depth on any of this. Also, I think it's worth noting that any sort of solutions, like you're not going to be able to find one solution that works across the entire country for addressing uh, housing. Um, That's just not realistic. And that's I think it's very similar to people who are constantly trying to find like a secret energy breakthrough that's going to get us off of fossil fuels with just one kind of thing. Right. You're going to need a large toolbox. um, And I always am a little bit skeptical if someone is promising some sort of a solution on something that's like, this is it. This is going to solve all of our problems if we just, you know, implement this. But housing is a, a crisis in the United States right now. And it's sort of a a situation that it seems like people should have been able to see coming a long way off. Maybe they didn't, I guess, because they just assumed every like that, that there wasn't a housing bubble and that it was just going to be everyone constantly moving further and further out into the suburbs and exurbs into these starter homes or whatever, you know, these these brand new houses. Uh, and it was just like a, you know, some a pyramid scheme that was never going to collapse. Oops, then it did. But, you know, the the reality is that we do have in many places a housing crisis, which I feel people should have been able to see coming a long way off because uh, the single biggest way you should have known there was going to be a problem if you were in a position of any sort of power to make any decisions on this is simply that the people who were born uh, between about 1988 and 1992 was the largest number of births in that, you know, short of a span since the baby boom. That cohort started 
you know, getting out of college and needing places to live, not only right as the, you know, right after the housing bubble had burst and people were starting to kind of retrench backward away from these, uh, you know, owning uh, homes, but also uh, you had a lot of uh, families who were older than them uh, who were wanting to move into new places uh, at the same time because starting in, uh, let's see, it was 2007 was the first year that the number of births in the United States rivaled the peak year of the baby boom, which was 1957. Mm. And a lot of people don't realize this, as I've mentioned, I think on the show before, it almost never gets discussed. But then for several years, there was a several year period where it was rivaling the the, the absolute number of births uh, at the height of the baby boom. Um, and, and, and a couple of the years, you know, on either side of that peak, those folks who were having babies, right. You know, a few years later, they're like, okay, now I've got a three-year-old or whatever. I want to move to, you know, get my kid into some good schools, that kind of thing, move into a new place. Or I, you know, I'm too big for this apartment now, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. That was all, it was all this convergence. And so some of it, you can't predict that far out, but some of it, like the fact that the, you know, this one particular cohort of millennials was going to all be Mm -hmm. ready to go into housing at the same time. I feel that there should have been people should have been able to, you know, kind of do something about it, but they didn't do uh, a whole lot about it. There's been a number of consequences about this. Um, you know, homeownership has uh, homeownership has gone way down to 1960s levels that a lot of that has to do with credit related issues. Um, right. That people, if they have student loans and things like that, or big credit card bills that they'd racked up during kind of the crisis years, it's hard to get, you know, a mortgage, that sort of thing. There's obviously a ton of stuff that you can read up on. If you want to know about racist banking practices, that's been a a huge force for many, many decades in housing policy, right. Of, of not either not lending when they should be lending to people of color or giving them kind of bad, terrible loan deals when, you know, in, in, in other periods. Yeah. Are you implying that the banks are not woke, Bill? Yeah, they're definitely <laughs> not. And there's there's a number of, of really good articles on that. Um, I'll, I'll try to maybe post some of them on arsenalfordemocracy.com. You know, so so like th- those kind of things are always going to be there. But but some of these things are sort of more recent specific forces that affect that. But anyway, homeownership is way down. You wanted to yeah, comment just on that? F- for those who are following, you know, you had mentioned that homeownership rates are down to what they were in the 1960s. Did I know that we millennials are, particip- are contributing to the the annihilation of the of the home, like the housing industry? But what it was like, what was the kind of along with everything else, yeah, along with everything else, like napkins, uh, <laughs> down with napkins. Uh, but what, so what was the 19? What was the level in 1960s? What was peak? And where we yeah, are let now, me, let me if, just, you, if you have that information. Yeah, let me just get that up. So in July 2015 was when it when it got down, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, to that to those levels again. Uh, this was that was the lowest reported rate since 1967, and it was 63.4%. The high had been in 2005, just before, you know, a couple years yeah. before the housing bubble burst. Uh, and it was 69.2%. So that may not seem like a that big of a change, but in terms of the you know millions of people shifted mm-hmm. at this point, uh, dropping from 69.2% down to 63.4% is a, is a pretty big decline. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, one of the consequences of of kind of people diverting out of of homeownership, it, you know, is that they're either moving in with crowded apartments or you know other homes or whatever and creating problems that way, or 
uh, and this has been a huge thing that I, I, I really think has been kind of only one-dimensionally discussed or two-dimensionally at, at best in a lot of media discussions or even just social media discussions. The problem of gentrification, that's been like obviously a, a, a problem for a long time, but right now you have a situation where not very well off or at least very high debt burden younger white people mm-hmm. are moving into urban areas and it's being portrayed in the media as like either that it's some sort of malicious effort to push out these you know black and latino communities that kind of thing or that it's uh you know that they're just doing it to be hip and cool or whatever you know that the uh, oh these these trendy millennials are all moving downtown mm-hmm. or whatever and like there's an element of that absolutely for sure um in some specific areas and there's absolutely a problem where communities, you know, uh, non-white communities are being pushed out through very unsavory practices uh, in a lot of places, you know, especially in the Bay area, that's been a huge issue, but there's also just this reality of like a ton of people suddenly, you know, getting out of college, entering the market for places to live. Mm -hmm. The home ownership market has kind of disintegrated with various problems. It's hard to get credit, you know? And so they're, they're moving into low income neighborhoods in cities yeah. because that's where they can afford to go. And maybe they can, maybe they can afford to pay more in rent as lower income white people than lower income non-white yeah. people. And so the landlords love jumping at that, you know, but there, there's, there's all these interplaying forces yeah. at work here. It kind of actually reminds me of what happened in the neighbor, in the Shaw neighborhood in DC, where it was somewhere that people would move kind of around the late two thousands because it was a more affordable neighborhood than other parts of the city, because D.C. is pretty expensive. And Shaw, you're not far out of downtown, you're not far out of DuPont Circle, and kind of what basically had happened over time was that DuPont pushed into, like, Logan Circle, and then Logan since pushed into Shaw. So, like, you did have people who wanted cheaper housing and went there, but then in the midst of the midst of the kind of the financial crisis, you had a whole bunch of people who had, a, like, of investors and developers who just had a lot of, a lot of cash, nowhere to park and then just parked it in Shaw because one place where there's always money is DC and so that ended up like all of the money being put into the area ended up fueling gentrification although there was definitely a process of people pushing out into there right and but they're set but they're they're related phenomena but they're at the same time the the investors and developers are the ones fueling it right and and I want to talk about that as well later um but that's that's jumping a little bit ahead I think uh, the the you know the sort of speculative role in all of this, um, but you know one final statistic, and then I want to go to Rachel here. One final statistic, according to the uh, you know Goldman Sachs Macroeconomic Research Unit, which regardless of your opinions on Goldman Sachs, they put out various research mm-hmm. reports that are useful for certain economic indicators. Um, from 2005 to 2014, the share of young people living with parents in the United States rose 4.5 percentage points. That was the same increase that was seen in Italy. And we're not going to talk too much about international components of this, but there's absolutely a problem with this happening all over the OECD, or at least in most of the OECD countries. All of these phenomena are happening in other places, pretty much. There's a few exceptions where there's slightly different dynamics happening. Um you know, and obviously the United States is like not at the at the act, absolute share, you know, that, that that was being experienced in Italy because there are some cultural differences or whatever. But they said that um, more than three million additional young people in the United States from 2005 to 2014 moved home or did not move out in the first place compared to normal conditions pre-2005. Um, normally it was 27 percent. 
after, you know, by 2014, it was 31.5%. So almost a third of, of people uh, who were in that uh, age bracket of 18 to 34, according to Goldman Sachs, uh, that uh, had moved in with their parents or not moved out. There's obviously some ongoing labor market problems that are going to mm-hmm. probably perpetuate that trend. Uh, they also had had talked about a subset of that, and there are similar statistics I'd seen in like the UK or whatever, where you know 25 to 34 year olds, uh, the overwhelming share of the increase is explained by youth underemployment, right? So they're just simply not making enough money and can't get enough hours. That's a huge thing that we'll talk about on a different episode, I think. But these are just some uh, statistics in general. And obviously, 35% of Americans in that cohort were underemployed in 2015. So that's Mm -hmm. a key fact. However, final point on this indicator, almost half the increase that happened happened from 2005 to 2008. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at this overall span from 2005 to 2014, and people are going, oh, it's because of the recession. Huh, well, that's weird because actually half the increase happened from 2005 to 2008, which is ostensibly before the crisis had happened. So there's there's obviously something structural that's happening mm-hmm. here that, again, is not really explained easily by some of the things that get thrown out there. Obviously, we're going to talk a lot about like Boston because that's where we're based. But Rachel, I want to go to you now because uh, you've been very patient here. Um <laughs> What, what's the situation in Idaho? What, what have you been experiencing? What have you been hearing from your peer group? Um, I think you're, you know, you're a little bit older in a different cohort than uh, Jonathan and I are. Um, so as of right now, uh, medium ho- median home values are at pre-2007 um, levels. Uh, we are experiencing a population boom. And as a, as a result of the halt of construction during the recession, um, and the lag behind of, of building um, in proportion to uh, population growth. We are experiencing a major housing crisis. The rent market is, it's it's a miniature version of what you're seeing in other areas. Right now, I, I personally own a home. It's in a neighborhood where uh, median home values are like the highest in the Boise metropolitan area. It's kind of insane right now. So right now it's, virtually impossible for a person making minimum wage to afford uh, rent unless you live with two or three other people um, or have two or three minimum wage jobs part-time because um, Idaho has one of the highest per capita rates of minimum wage workers, which also adds another kink in in affordability of housing. And um, we just don't have a lot of public housing in Boise. Um, We are getting... Um, more construction in the area, but it's all luxury condos. Um, it's all market value uh, housing. It, there's no below market value housing. And anytime there is proposed below market value or subsidized housing um, planned, there's a lot of NIMBYs that come out of the word work and a lot of demonization of people who require subsidized housing they don't take care of their pro- they don't take care of their belongings they don't take care of their community they let it go to rot like it, there's just a lot of ugly classist racist um, uh, propaganda against people who live in in subsidized housing and it's kind of disgusting you know uh, Rachel when you were just talking about the percentage of minimum wage like the large rate of uh, large percentage of minimum wage workers in Idaho it reminded me of a recent report from the National Low Income Housing Coalition that I believe just came out within the past week. Uh, and they were looking at how much 
like to see whether or not somebody making minimum wage would be able to afford a two bedroom two bedroom apartment or how many like how much money you would have to be making per hour right uh working 40 hours and, and almost assuming a two full-time workers Mm-hmm. You couldn't in any like on current minimum wage, you couldn't do that in any U.S. state. Mm-hmm. That in in noting like states like Alaska, Washington, Colorado, Florida, Virginia, Illinois, and most of the Northeast, you would have to make over twenty dollars an hour. With California, D.C., and Hawaii being the highest, and it just kind of shows, like particularly with people who are with families, since that's kind of what that kind of like the family for whatever. Like at current wage levels, housing is. A lot of housing is just completely out, like just for rental is out of reach. Yeah. Well, and, you know, obviously like a lot of, you know, because you were actually mentioning, Rachel, that some of the housing prices like for for purchase are you were saying is is, how how does it compare, we'll say, to the, the bubble point? Like, is it back up to that level or what? It's above pre 2007. Yeah. It's a new artificial bubble that's. I, you can see the writing on the wall, but there's yeah. not really anything happening to stop or slow. Yeah, it's it's this, probably gonna inflation. It's probably gonna pop again um, mm-hmm. with pretty catastrophic effects. We'll hope that that doesn't lead us into you know fascism or whatever. But right, um, I mean that's the thing is right there 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 doesn't seem to be this this move to actually do much about this situation or any of these situations or fix these things. One of the I think the big things though you know that Jonathan was alluding to earlier that's happened since the bubble was that. Uh, a lot of these sort of properties got snapped up mm-hmm. by either just pure land speculators. There's a lot of uh, foreign buyers now. You know, they're they're just saying, well, the land is eventually going to be super valuable or this apartment building is going to be a v- very valuable, you know, if I wait a few years. So it's a secure place mm-hmm. to park my sometimes ill-gotten gains if they're from various countries, uh, you know, that are a little bit sketchy. And then there's also just been this huge surge. Uh, and I'll also try to find a, a, a link about, about this to put on our arsenalfordemocracy.com but there's been a surge in wall street financial institutions buying like huge tracts of rental properties Mm -hmm. individual homes or row houses or whatever they cut the cost to the bone in terms of management costs and that kind of thing so it's not very nice to live in them the maintenance isn't that great you don't get your problems fixed if you have a problem and they don't have any sort of incentive to like worry about the actual stability of the communities that they're quote-unquote creating and they're not really creating they're Mm -hmm. just sort of there and they're just basically skimming off these rising rent prices because they can right there's nothing to stop them from doing that yeah the the point you're making just reminded me of that there was this was i think last year it's possible it was the year before where the New York Times had an investigative feature. Just looking at in terms of like, I think, I don't know if it was one or several large buildings in Midtown Manhattan, which a lot of the tenants just don't live. Like, they're owned by very well, they're very expensive condos owned by very wealthy people who don't live there. And that's one thing that just particularly appalling with a lot of the boom in luxury, like with some of the luxury condo development. Which is a thing are, in Boston. Yeah, too, yeah, which is definitely a thing in Boston. I'm in New York, London. The people who own the properties just don't live there, whether they're, they are domestic or whether they're uh, sometimes they, they can be Chinese or Russian billionaires or American billionaires, whatever. Buying these up just for the sake of kind of having them as assets rather than actually living in them. And that the, uh, the other big phenomenon in terms of like, particularly with urban housing markets you've seen recently it has to do with airbnb where you have the short-term rental phenomenon where people are able to like on one hand airbnb can be a boon to people who are who want to be able to stay in their current place particularly if you have let's say older couples or like 
widows or whatever, and they have excess space that they don't need, and they want to be able to kind of rent space out. That, that can be a useful thing, by all means. The problem is that it also allows for landlords to do short-term rentals that are very lucrative for them, but skew the housing markets by taking properties off the market. Right. So uh, this is just kind of an overview here before we go to the break, highlighting a lot of different angles on the the problem. There's also problems with the solutions and various solutions, uh, you know, things that are being done, things that are being tested. And uh, so we're going to talk about that when we come back from a break uh, from ArsenalForDemocracy.com and WVUD. Please stick around. You're still listening to Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Still in studio with me is Jonathan, and on the line is Rachel. So I wanted to touch first in this segment, because we're still continuing on this housing topic, with some of the, like, rhetoric uh, around this issue. Obviously, like, this is a very, very heated thing for a lot of people, right? If you're being pushed out of your community or you're desperate to find a place to live, no question, it's going to be very heated. One of the things, though, you know, Rachel in passing mentioned that there's, you know, uh, she described them as NIMBYs, the people who are, like, opposing some of these things. But as I mentioned at the top of the episode, we have to be very careful about the specific cities and contexts and whether we're talking about a big city or a suburb or a small city or whatever. We have to be very careful about how we're discussing this because mm-hmm. not every situation is the same. Even if you're just comparing Boston or Newton, right? We're recording this in Newton, which is a suburb of Boston. Even the difference between Boston and Newton, which are part of the same like metro area and have shared kind of connections with the housing market, that sort of thing. Even there, some there's going to be differences, right? And there's this weird thing that's now happened that I am very troubled by uh, where there's like people getting called NIMBYs, people calling themselves YIMBYs, the opposite of that, like yes in my backyard, but then like not all the NIMBYs are actually NIMBYs and not all the YIMBYs are really YIMBYs. It's like, it's it's, it's, it's very confusing because, right, because if someone is being literally displaced, like their neighborhood is being taken away from them, like say in some place like Oakland or whatever, you're forcing out the people of color Mm in favor of these newer communities. And again, it's a complicated issue, but if the real estate development is pushing it or whatever, right? Calling those people NIMBYs for opposing, you know, the construction or whatever is like bad. That's a bad take or whatever. And calling people YIMBYs for uncritically supporting the kind of development that's also like misleading or whatever, because then it, it makes it into like a good guys, bad guys thing that's not necessarily reflective of the actual power dynamics. By contrast, like if you're looking in, you know, in some place like Newton, the opposition, and I think this is the point that you were making with regard to Boise, uh, is that a lot of times, not universally, but a lot of times the opposition tends to be framed more as like, well, I don't want those kind of people moving into my neighborhood, and those kind of people means non white people mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, you know, who knows what the socioeconomic status is in some of these cases. And I think that was kind of the point you were making in Idaho, right? Like that, you know, and that's like a totally different dynamic, Mm -hmm. I think, than the Bay Area, right? Yeah. The the interesting thing is that you do end up having an attempt to conflate those two phenomena when 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 actually you'll have people opposing the development of new housing that doesn't adhere to or or build upon affordability standards. So that people have concerns about building new housing when that housing will be increasing overall 
overall rents for an area. So I know that that's, you see that particularly like in Cambridge and Somerville, right outside of Boston, where that you end up having heated debates about new construction, kind of the opponents of it are, are, are concerned, but you have developers adhering to either the say base level, even below requirement levels of affordable units in a building and don't support like building, like if you're not going to adhere toward a decent enough standard, why should we be allowing you to right. build? And this is this is one of the other things too. This is why I keep emphasizing that there is a difference depending on the specific location you're talking about because, okay, so, so in most places, right, you're not gonna address an affordable housing crisis by building more luxury apartments. But on the other hand, you also have places where people absolutely oppose increasing any sort of supply mm-hmm. of housing of any kind because yeah. they've either, they've well, the rhetoric line that they're using and maybe they actually believe it is that somehow increasing the supply is going to make this like a more attractive place that's going to make the costs go up and so the existing housing is going to cost more something like that you know and then you've got the other people on the other side saying no it's a simple supply and demand issue you know if we increase the supply and and they'll use this both negatively and positively right if we increase the supply in absolute terms then magically the prices will become affordable because there'll be more supply and that's obviously not true if you're only building Mm -hmm. luxury units but on the other hand you know uh, 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 what effect does it have if you increase the supply dramatically of of lower uh, priced units in an area where people are depending on their housing values not going down because mm-hmm. there is an increase you know they they're afraid of an increase in supply because that was what they were going to retire on was selling their home mm-hmm. or whatever and so there's all these different warped incentives and and the the rhetoric is just so heated and everyone's using all the same arguments which then makes it very difficult for us to like research for this segment right yeah, or this, this episode because it's like okay well we, we know who's who's the bad guy who's the good guy is there not a bad guy or a good guy um there was a this very very long article that was published in Truth Out. The headline was Yimbies, the darlings of the real estate industry. And they were talking about these giant real estate companies or, or financial institutions that were buying up all these properties that are literally like astroturfing, right? So fake mm-hmm. grassroots funding people to do podcasts and stuff like that. You know, on this, and then I'm like reading this and knowing that we're going to do an episode. I'm like, oh no, like we, we have to make sure we're not being co-opted by the real estate corporations because there were people that I had thought about like, oh, maybe this would be an interesting person to have on as a guest expert. And then I was like, no, we got to pull up the drawbridge. I'm only inviting people that I know and trust on the show, you know, because because I was afraid if they're if they're literally paying people to make their corporate case for, mm-hmm. you know, a corporate oriented development that's not a community oriented development. Uh, now I'm getting very nervous about like, who are these people? What's their agenda? There were people feuding uh, in Boston over a thing near, I think it was near Boston Common. It has to do with their rules governing Boston Common about how much shadow is able to be on the common at any given time just in kind of like preserving the kind of the natural character of the space. There was one developer, well, this was Millennium, I believe it was Millennium Towers, that they wanted to build above the level that like, and so basically they'd be violating the existing laws. And they would need a special They'd need a special, kind of a special permit uh, from city council, also from the the state state, legislature, also from the state, uh, to build above that and kind of violating the existing shadow laws. And you ended up having a situation where basically they ended up donating saying like well we are violating the shadow law in the common but here we're going to give money to all these other parks around the city if you agree to allow us to violate existing law and to build a largely unaffordable complex right like in the heart of like kind of back bay in downtown yeah well and so that's the thing right there were people who are who are advocates of uh, affordable housing who were opposed to this 
And then there were also advocates of, of housing, you know, and affordable housing who were in favor of it. And the same when it comes to parks, because you would have parks advocates who are like, I'm really happy that my park is getting money out of this. But you also have people like, why are you messing with messing with Boston Common? If we're allowing this to happen, what are you going to give a waiver for next? So you end up having this debate where it's something that's kind of almost intentionally pitting different interests against right. I each think other. a lot of it's very intentional. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, it's, it's relying on disinformation and confusion or whatever. Um, this actually also happened with the, um, there was a proposed plank uh, regarding mm-hmm. housing for the Massachusetts Democratic Party, yeah, and, state convention. and I guess it didn't it didn't have enough votes to pass, right? Yeah. So, so what but happened? Then, so- but then, but then, like you could tell very clearly in the room that half the housing advocates for whom housing is their big issue were pushing this, and half of them were against it. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know if this is a good proposal or not, honestly, because it's confusing. We haven't had time to review it, but I also don't know because as you know, we were talking off air before you can almost make any studies, you know, support your okay, side. Right. Yeah. Cause it was an interesting, so it was at our state party convention, uh, our revolution, Massachusetts had several amendments and a few of them got in and got in easily. Several of them were ruled out of order and with some in kind of methods that seemed somewhat questionable and how they were ruled out of order. But this was the, I believe the only one that, that went down on on a vote itself. Right. The other ones were ruled out of order, and there was a the, ruling them out of order was sustained. Right on a vote, but this on uh, the housing amendment had various types of tenants' rights protections and other kind of uh, things to strengthen. Some of it was definitely good. Yeah, like ju- kind of just cause eviction laws, etc. But the the one line that caused a lot of tension was the amendment included kind of language saying to strike existing language in the platform about encouraging the production of market rate housing. And that ended up creating a lot of debate about whether about whether or not people believe that the an increase in market rate housing would help reduce rents or ends up just increasing them. And you'll have people arguing from this claiming that it does the same thing. Right. But with nobody act but my bias would be to, to believe those because like, I'm skeptical of those uh, of the claims that increasing market rate housing production will without any type of regulatory framework around it will it's, itself find, somehow manage to lower rents. But like people could find studies to say either thing and nobody was actually right. citing any well, studies so that, in particular. That was the thing, right? They would get up there and both sides would make the argument, yes, we need more market rate housing in order to move people who can afford market rate mm-hmm. housing out of impinging on more affordable or lower income housing. And we also need people, you know, and then the other side would get up and say, no, we need to be focused on below market rate housing, whether it's subsidized or artificially cut or whatever. There's also a whole issue. And this is, again, why, like, I'm I'm just I'm emphasizing over and over again that you have to be careful about what area or city you're talking exactly, about, is- because the factors that cause the housing crisis in the Boston area are not identical to the factors that mm-hmm. cause it in the Seattle area or the Bay yeah. area, which is a, a lot of the, you know, the people would be citing like talking about, well, they did it in this way right. in this city. And I'm like, but that's not necessarily the reason that is yeah. behind our thing, uh, you know, so, yeah. And as well as you just have the issues of you're saying that, that I think some of the critics or some of the people pushing to eliminate that, the amendment that eliminated that text, we're noting is that like, we don't need the, like if the party's focus, if the party is saying one of its main 
principle should be to increase market rate housing production. That ends up leading to a whole lot of questions about is that really what our priority should be and what types of housing is that going to be and kind of etc which ends up leading to a lot of issues because also just uh, to my earlier point about the the fascinating okay, almost fascinating way in which how easy it is to play politics with numbers is the fact that there has been recent articles about how rents have been going down in, in Boston I think it was mean rents going down. You also you have the issue, of course, that you can measure rent, the movement of rents by means, and you can measure the rent, movement of rents by median rents, which themselves are, of course, different things. That it depends on how, how you collect the information, how extensive you're going to be, what parameters you set. And I know like, that the city had data, the city claimed that they studied this and that rents have actually gone down because of the increase in market rate and often luxury production, but there's no publicly available data to verify those claims, and then because you have studies that are conducted with other methodologies that will sh- show that, in fact, housing is getting more expensive. But you can set any any range of different parameters to set... So it's the, the kind of way in which so much of economic analysis is embedded ideology. Let's talk now in, in more political dimensions about specific sort of solutions. Um, first, we're going to talk about some strategies that have been employed kind of in the here and now that are like not huge structural changes. They're just like steps that can be taken now and have been taken in various places. And then uh, I do want to, you know, when we close out, I want to talk about some of the kind of bigger things that have been floated. But again, emphasizing that there's not going to be one silver bullet type thing. A lot of the solutions that are relatively kind of small scale solutions, and I think are probably a good idea in light of some of the points that we've made about like having to be careful in terms of trying to have one size fits all responses to things and analyses of, you know, that don't necessarily cross apply. A lot of these are sort of community oriented strategies. And this is basically instead of just having the government, the federal government rain down Section 8 vouchers that are subsidies to landlords, which... Mm -hmm. Subsidies to the supply side can often create all sorts of problems. If you're, it's a price subsidy, you know, not a creation subsidy or anything like that. It's just subsidizing. You know, if if we're just strictly talking about a subsidy toward rent prices or whatever, you know, it's like what's the re- what's to stop them from saying, oh, yeah, well, the market rate just went up, and you know, you got to keep subsidizing us or whatever. There are various sort of strategies that are focused on actually increasing the supply and and kind of maintaining cohesive communities that are anti-gentrification strategies as well and just sort of trying to build more whole communities that kind of thing you have on the one hand places like austin texas or even new york state that have um like non-profit corporations essentially that are owned by the city or county or state um, and they, you know, try to own a lot of uh, pr- properties. They own them a lot, a lot of them outright, and then rent them out or give ninety-nine year leases, that kind of thing. Similarly, uh, you know, community trust arrangements in places like Boston—that was a, an early pioneering of that in the country. Um, and these sort of appeal to me as someone who is, I think, people may have gathered from this show, kind of a statist on a lot of issues. Um, you know, it, and if it's something that is like not a standard good or service and there's some sort of a monopolistic component to it, which in this case has to do with land, as we'll talk about later, you know, that you want to you want to have the government uh, be having some sort of regulatory or direct ownership role in that. These strategies are also different from older supply size strategies that failed pretty categorically 
both here and in other countries where you would end up building like these giant silos of isolated, uh, you know, apartment complex blocks and stuff that would, you know, get overrun with gangs and, and things like that and have all sorts of problems. And they'd be hard to repair because if you're building giant blocks of housing, then how do you repair things? Cause you can't just move thousands of families out or whatever. And these would become very isolated away from, you know, grocery stores and businesses and, you know, entertainment and things like that. And, and it just creates a lot of problems. So that's not a good strategy, but sort of more localized things regarding either, you know, nonprofit networks that are backed by the state or County or whatever, um, having, uh, community trust arrangements, things like that. They're all, they all have to be in some way backed or licensed by the state. Mm -hmm. That's actually what a lot of European countries have done, mm -hmm. um, particularly in Western Europe, because the situation in Eastern Europe in the post-communist areas is a whole other story that we won't really get into right now. Um, but a lot of places, uh, it's very unusual, except in the U S and Germany to be just subsidizing landlords. Um, generally it's, it's much more oriented toward, uh, having like nonprofit arrangements or whatever. And you're, you're, you're focusing on building little communities and distributing them throughout buying up tracts of land throughout your city or your community so that people are not, you know, so it's not, Oh, this is the, the government owned or government funded part of town. You want to have people be spread out through various communities. That's also tricky again, when you're dealing with a U.S. that is incredibly decentralized in a way that a lot of European countries are not. Um, so that, you know, as soon as you go outside the city lines of Boston, now you're in a different community and they've got their own rules. And, you know, so that can be kind of tricky. Before I go to Jonathan, Rachel, did you have any kind of feedback on any of those sort of strategies? I think we have two major public housing uh, buildings in, in Boise. And I really, it, it's, it's fascinating to me because they are centrally located. They are near food. Um, and entertainment and culture. So it, we have the right idea and we have, we're on the right track. We just need an emphasis on more public housing. Um, that is definitely something that is severely lacking in, in Boise and, and the, the metropolitan area. Um, so I, I wish we had more of an emphasis on, on public housing and keeping it, keeping it close to the center of, of culture in Boise. What do you think, though, in terms of moving away from both a direct ownership strategy and a pretty wildly privatized strategy and, and trying to have like either nonprofit corporations that own a lot of properties and rent them out all of like, you know, they can buy individual units or or uh, arrangements where whole tracts of land are owned by one entity and then kind of leased out any any thoughts on that? Um, I don't know if that's necessarily relevant as relevant in Idaho as in some more already heavily built up areas. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure how how that applies to Boise. I, I'd have to do some more reading and research on that. All right, Jonathan. Just on the talk of public housing, just reminded me of a general point of mine of how I think that we really should put more emphasis in actually having caring about the quality of kind of architecture and construction of the, of the public realm that I think that you have a long history of, of public housing complexes being kind of like disserviced uh, because people not caring, like, because, like, the government not caring about keeping them up. And I think it actually matters a lot about what it says about what we think about the public in terms of the comment, like, about kind of the public realm, about how much, about making sure that things that are publicly owned are, in fact, beautiful spaces. And kind of that if they're kept up, that they're ma made to look, basically look like attractive neighborhoods and design. Tra transit, of course, is also, like... Rachel was talking about the importance of having how like an affordable housing near cultural centers. Transit is also always a big issue with that That's as true well. Too, yeah. Transit, yeah. 
that because because tra- issues of transit can have transit equity can can exacerbate issues like have tra- inequities around transit can exacerbate existing inequities around housing and, and like you have the problematic phenomenon that people that it's really it's beneficial to people to be able to live near near public transit but then public the existence of new public transit stops often leads to this, a spike in housing prices in an area which speaks and kind of and in terms of the various strategies one thing that we had been talking to prior to the show was the existence of community land trusts, which yeah. have been around uh, for for several decades in Boston, uh, as well as well as a number of other cities, where you're able to have. So this it it differs a little bit from the sort of uh, like in in Austin, as I understand it, the nonprofit is buying up like specific you know housing units in different areas and then making them available to people. Whereas in the community land trust model, there's a great report. Uh, that had a lot of definitions in it, building livable Boston, um, that was like defining these things, right? That you're you're buying again, backed by the state, like you know the state or yeah. the city is giving you yeah. eminent domain authority to buy up these you know vacant lots or whatever. You know there was a lot of in in the specific community in Roxbury, there was a lot of like illegal dumping that had been happening yeah. of toxic waste. They kind of put a stop to that. Um, you know, just dealing with actual vacancies, but you have to be careful because you don't want to be giving developers this eminent domain power. You want to have it be this community arrangement, and that's where the, the CLT model comes in. So they, as an entity, own all the land underneath it. They own all the tracts of land, and then they have 99-year leases that go to people, and then people own the buildings on it and can, you know, own a business or own a mm-hmm. house or whatever, uh, and th- that's like kind of one of their solutions. Although I think it's worth stressing that like this is a lot smaller. Like it's 226 units of affordable housing. I think there's probably other housing as well, but like that's a lot of families. But that's also it's relatively small, small compared to the scale of the problem in Boston. Whereas you know that arrangement in Austin, they were talking about like I think 2,000 something units. You know, so 10 yeah. times bigger. Like that is you know th- there are some challenges. It's probably again not going to be a silver bullet, but maybe it's a solution. You wanted to talk a little bit more about that, though. Yeah. So one thing that you know, that I was uh, talking about before the show, where things like community land trusts can help a lot, is that you do have parts of city like so DSNI, the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative that you were mentioning. It was kind of came about when you had a lot of disinvestment in, in Roxbury, and it was a strategy of being able to keep wealth in the community and be able to kind of make make it a more livable and beneficial place for all involved you do have a number like there are a number of cities where you do just have a lot of you'll have you'll have landlords who own vacant lots that they do nothing with or vacant properties that they do nothing with it it does damage like it's not helping the neighbor the neighborhood at all to have have those and when you have at the same time as you have these vacant properties sitting in decay you also have people who desperately need homes and that kind of having arrangements like a community land trust is one way of making sure that you have a you have a body that's committed to keeping property affordable and keeping that that kind of those assets and the wealth within the community, but still being able to de- and to be able to develop an area for the benefit of those in the area. Now we had a long discussion off air before the show because um, Rachel and I had read up a lot on this, and Jonathan had done some you know writing on some of this before. We were just trying to like parse out different kind of philosophical approaches that people have had to this. Fundamentally, a lot of it boils down to a central point, which is that land is not a consumer commodity. Land is a finite thing that 
has some amount of inherent value, some amount of value based on what's being put on it or, you know, economic generated wealth, whatever, and some amount of value based on where it is, right? So if it's mm -hmm. near other cool stuff, it's either going to benefit from that or drag down the value of those other things, depending on, you know, what it's being used for. This creates all sorts of problems because you have people, like you said, who are just speculatively sitting on land, not really doing a whole lot with it. Um, and there's been various kind of proposals to deal with this. Um, one of them is called Georgism. That's something that a lot of people had written in to ask if we could talk about on the show. We were kind of hoping to talk about it at some more depth than we we're going to today but it was a little bit complicated for us to figure out how to talk about it. So we're probably going to circle back to it. And the proposal there, I guess, is that basically, so this is like a 19th century neoclassical type economic proposal, I think, right? That's, he's, that's he's saying, not directly he's in not school, exactly but building but, off yeah. of it, but, but within that framework. Right. That, and, and it's, it's sort of the approach is like that, people who just own land and aren't really like they're not building a business with it they're not providing housing that sort of thing if they're just like just owning the land itself because uh either you stole it from the native americans or you mm -hmm. you know inherited it through aristocracy in you know england or whatever that just owning the land is neither laboring for something yeah. as a worker nor yeah. is it even being a capitalist who's you know investing in yeah. you know a factory or something like that you, and you're this sort of third class of just rentiers who yeah. makes all your money off of other people doing stuff on that land and he, he didn't want to encourage that yeah cause it, it seems like the kind of that that divide in, that you see in have in neoclassical economics going back or not neoclassical because it's the cl kind of classical that point before rather than the neo coming later uh, where you have kind of the rentier get you have the rentier, you have the capitalist, and you have the laborer. The laborer gets wages, the capitalist gets profits, and the rentier, the rentier obviously gets rent, which is kind of the rentier be, kind of being the person who just own, owns the land over which on which the capitalist does kind of the productive work and the laborer la laborer works. But the rentier isn't doing anything but making a lot of money, right. despite that, and that it, you also have various types of rents that exist in other that kind of take the form and other things beyond land. Yeah. Right. Like so a lot fire of the, sector being an example. A lot of this proposal basically boiled down to like putting taxes in place that would try to discourage certain uses or non-uses of the land. And like, you know, that I, you know, there was a whole philosophical component about like making it everything boil down to this one tax. And it's like a different way of taxing it than just property taxes. Um, but on the other hand, there are some problems too because it's a very development-oriented proposal, I think. Yes. Which, which can be beneficial if you're trying to grow your housing stock, I guess, depending on how you structure it or you know make maybe regulatory mechanisms. Like you could have a specific tax cut or something that encourages housing. I don't know. But uh, you, if your goal is also – if you have a secondary goal or an additional goal or something or a co-goal of like also preserving open spaces and forest lands and things like that, you have to be careful about having a tax like this. If it encourages people to build a lot of stuff on this land instead of keeping it open spaces. However, the sort of left response to that would be, yeah, but in that case, no one should have the land and not be doing, no private person should have the land and be doing anything with it. And that's kind of, it goes back to a lot of these issues of the tragedy of the commons and mm -hmm. all these other things, which is like, should private individuals be able to own land at all? And that's kind of one of the concepts behind something like the Dudley Street concept in Roxbury in Boston, these community land trusts is it's not quite having the state or the city own it, but it's pretty close to having like an external non-private mm -hmm. entity that owns it and, and basically 
basically saying no one should actually be owning the land. Um, it's kind of a halfway step toward that. I am kind of curious to see as environmental degradation issues become even more of a concern. I'm very curious to see whether we're going to start seeing kind of a revival of land reform issues mm -hmm. within the left. Cause that was always a huge issue in any sort of Maoist inspired left movements um, or like Central American, Latin American left movements, because you would have, um, you would have these, these rentier, you know, mm -hmm. classes that were just had basically walked in, you know, in the 1500s or whatever said, all these thousands and thousands of square miles belong to me and my family. And then they just keep passing it down. They don't do anything on it, you know, and just people like are laboring and it's a very feudal system. And so any of these sort of anti-feudal left communist perspectives or whatever tended to emphasize land reform, but that's not something that's really come up in like the industrialized left, at least certainly not in the United States. I'm sure some people have, but I don't think it's been a major feature. But then again, I mean, that speaks to a bigger picture thing too, which is just that like housing hasn't been a huge issue yet on the left uh, in, in the way that like healthcare, for example, has been a huge issue. Obviously it is an issue to many people and many people on the left do talk about it, but it has not yet gained some of the level of organizing uh so people are moving in that direction um but like you know for a long time that was not necessarily the big issue because people just kept moving further and further out or whatever um or they were focusing on issues of like labor value right there's a lot of labor value theories regarding you know around socialism that emphasize everything has to do with the worker mm -hmm. or that sort of thing and if you're not in agricultural context mm -hmm. then these land reform issues seem less relevant perhaps but fundamentally like does the land belong to anyone should any one person mm -hmm. own it i don't know uh rachel you were also looking up some of this stuff what was your kind of take on on this other than that it seems complicated <laughs> well i i think it's it's good to get a get perspectives from all over the country because obviously Idaho's a very rural we don't have a lot of population density issues so i think we're still far behind where you guys are because there's still that outward spread and there's still plenty of land to develop on but if we can nip that in the bud now we're setting ourselves up for success in the future and i think there isn't a lot of talk about it in Idaho because it hasn't become that big issue yet. But as you can see from other urban areas, it's going to become an issue. So the sooner we address it, the sooner we can come to a good solution that, that hopefully will please as many people as possible. Yeah, I mean, Texas and Southern California are not models to emulate with regard <laughs> oh, yeah. to development and sprawl and those sort of things. Yeah, Jonathan. No, just thinking in terms of like with uh, the nature of Georgism. So before, as I noted, that you had the renter gets his rent, the capitalist gets profits, the labor gets wages, and then the kind of Henry George's idea was that almost kind of akin to like a Thomas Paine or some of the other kind of in that that tradition that what people do, the people's productive use of kind of land and tools that are like that belongs to them and they should accrue wealth from that. But the land itself to become like owned because you're right. And that's kind of the, kind distinction, of the basis. Yeah. The distinction between this sort of tax model and property tax models is that you are kind of separating like the, the profits made from, from the, the, the productive like, use exactly. that you've installed on top of that land versus that there's a raw tax on the land. Cause itself. that's yeah, cause the, 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 the goal with like Henry George's single tax was to basically tax the underlying land, the unused undeveloped land that should accrue no, that, not being doing anything for so many people, just accruing wealth despite not actually using anything productively, be getting rich for the sake of already being rich. 
uh, how in like the mid, back in like the late nineteenth mid mid late nineteenth century, Georgism was somewhat controversial on the left because you had kind of those of a Marxist span as well as some other left saw that it was basically it preserved the existing capitalist system too much because as you were saying that like it didn't really have anything against profits being made. So remember that like some of the some Marxists in the U.S. but would often criticize Georgism as being like the capitalist last stand of in the attempt to say where like that the capitalist class was going to be like screw all of the rentiers we're fine destroying like that value as long as we get to keep ours right and that comes from a time period where you have capitalists especially in england say as opposed to the united states you have capitalists you know the 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 guys with the top hats building factories in the old cartoons Mm -hmm. whatever against the like uh, the landed gentry and the aristocracy like that those people were fundamentally clashing with each other and this was a this was sort of a liberal business oriented solution against the rentier class in a way that it's not a worker friendly or indigenous friendly or people friendly like mass solution. Well, George, you know, George Wright positioned it as the latter. Right. Many of his supporters also did position right. itself. But the, as the I'm latter. saying this is the criticism of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. The, the criticism of it was that it's basically it, it's just help, helping the capitalists, whereas he had support many many supporters who would have, who would have argued against that. But it's part of the the kind of underlying issue there is how how do you determine what the value of the land of like the pure value of of land so to speak is that if you were to talk about the kind of the land in and of itself beyond any productive use of it that the problem is that so much of that determines the value of land or what you could do with the land determines that value or what's around it determines that value. Right. And that's a controversy too is like then do you have people basically trying to buy off the assessors yeah. you know to get a a specific assessment or something like that you know and and again and and this is where i think we want to leave it cuz we're we're out of time this week but this is where i want to leave this right we're we're raising in this episode we're raising a lot of the problems we're raising various solutions that have been floated we're not saying this is the solution we're going with or endorsing or anything like that on any of these things that we've talked about just because i think that i am wary of anything being proposed as the single solution for something i am a little concerned that some of the people pushing georgism are are kind of it's like um it can be a little bit like people pushing you know universal basic income or something where it's like it's really going to depend on the specific Mm -hmm. of it you know that you have both conservative libertarian types and lefties pushing it so obviously they're not pushing the same thing right and that's where you get into like george's view on georgism is different from some of the critics views of georgism Mm -hmm. So you have to be careful with any of these things. This is a hugely complicated issue. I think we'll definitely keep returning to the housing issue, but we're just like trying to put it on more people's radars, get people thinking about some of these things and talk about some of these different solutions. I was going to note that one thing particularly that also leads to some of the complications around Georgism is that the ideal in the case of you're trying to eliminate any of that kind of rent accrued to the unproductive use of land would just be the socialization of land. Which I kind of remember correctly that kind of was would have been the ideal for Henry George, like to Henry George, like the land is all all held is all held in in common. Although the single tax system ends up coming about from a realization of of thinking that that would be overly difficult, and instead trying to tax away the value of the land, which would force them to probably sell it back if you did it taxed enough. 
say, oh, well, I'll just sell it to the government to get out from paying these taxes yeah, or whatever. Almost like a workaround. All right, uh, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us on this complicated topic. I know you did a lot of research behind the scenes on this one. Thanks for having me. This was this was a very difficult topic to kind of wrap my brain around. So thanks for letting me chat and talk it over with you. And uh, Jonathan, thank you for being here as well. Yeah, thanks for having me on. That's all the time we have this week. Tweet us your comments at AFD Radio or email AFDRadio at gmail.com. The show is available for download from ArsenalForDemocracy.com on Wednesdays. You can also hear it on the air in Delaware from 91.3 FM WVUD, WVUD HD1, and WVUD HD2 Newark every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern. You can get additional commentary at ArsenalForDemocracy.com daily, as well as links to articles discussed today. From my studio in Newton, Massachusetts, I'm Bill Humphrey, and I approve this message. Good night. Thank you.